Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors Worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, moderator of Meaningful Conversations and convener of community. As we continue to grow the HSCT Warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. I'm so glad you've joined us. So how are you feeling? Like you had just gotten back to work and now you're quarantined. Yeah, um, I feel incredible, but at the same time, I I, kind of don't like being put on pause in the recovery. Um, It was a unique experience, to say the least, recovering at home, and I got to where I felt better. My energy levels were up. Everything was going much better for me. And then when I started working again, doing, you know, the nine, ten hour days at school, I started noticing real fatigue setting back in, and I was just obviously tired from doing that level of work, which I hadn't been doing. And I had just found my stride again and was feeling like a good old version of me when we all had to stop again. It's such an interesting time we're in. Very interesting. So we're talking with John today. And John, I think you were one of the last patients transplanted by Dr. Bird. Is that right? That is correct. I was in the last group that he did at Northwestern before taking his sabbatical. Okay. So how many people were in your group? Oh, an exact number, I'm not sure. I want to say 12 that I know of. I think the number is higher than that. Mm. There were just 12 of us that uh, managed to find each other online before the fact. So how did that feel? Oh, the range of emotions is extreme. Um, I think I went through them all. Um, Very skeptical at first about the whole HSCT process because I was not familiar with HSCT itself, but other people had shared, you know, links with me, family members trying to be helpful when you have MS or any autoimmune and they want to help you. So anything they discover online or in the news they share with you, want you to read about. And a family member had shared with me a link to a news article about a stem cell clinic. And it was one of the many that, you know, pop up around the country where they're using um, adipose tissue derived stem cells sure. and injecting them directly into areas and that's going to be the cure and I read it and I said mom that that science doesn't work you know yeah. she she shared one of the articles I'm like that that doesn't at all seem helpful and there are more skeptics and there are believers and I just that's not the way to go so when my wife last March was on Facebook and it was one of these society's posts and in the comments somebody said why aren't you telling people about HSCT? Why is it always medications? And she saw those four letters and didn't know what it was. And she started doing research. And then I'm across the room in my chair doing some schoolwork on a laptop. And she said, I just sent you a link. You need to read that. And I lost interest as soon as I got to stem cells. I'm like, oh, it's another one of those. This is not, you know, not, mm, not. Yeah. Said, no, she said, this is different. I, I think this one's different. I want you to read that. And so I read it. And I read the articles and it, it piqued my interest, but it was a process of several days where I, you know, wanted to do my research and read more about it. And I didn't really understand the process. I just knew that it was, it was different and the results were positive. And so I got optimistic, but I stay extremely busy and distracted and absent-minded and 
several days in a row, have you applied? Have you applied? Have you applied? And almost as if you just get off my back. I'm like, okay, look, I'll send him an email. Right. <laughs> so I emailed um, just a general short little email of interest. His nurse at the time that was running that part of the office. And I got an email back the next day that said, we'd like you to apply. And I'm like, well, that's encouraging. And so I filled out the full application and, you know, that was my start of the process that anybody that went through the trial at Northwestern has, has been through, you know, initial emails, fill out the applications and in your medical record, your scans, your files. And then um, I put that in the mail and it wasn't 72 hours after I mailed that to them that I got a phone call that um, said he would like to meet you in Chicago for a more formal evaluation. We think you could be a good candidate for this. And so that's when I'm like, okay, this could happen. And I started researching even more and I read the journal articles and, you know, in January he had been published. And so I was able to read those notes and everything seemed to be going so well. And I flew up in June, had about a five day period of testing with Dr. Bert, Dr. Belavanov and went through all of the tests at Northwestern and you know, I'm told everything looks great. We'll get these results and we'll let you know. And uh, they, they actually called me. Um, while I was there, I get one call from Dr. Berth that says, we think you'd be a good candidate for this. We're going to wait and see what the neurologist says. And I flew home before I heard. And I just um, sent an email to his office director and said, I haven't heard back. And they said, oh, we're sorry. Yeah, you're definitely a go. This, you know, we're going to get you scheduled. We'll just do some preliminary testing, probably closer to August and then we'll let you know what your timeline will be and we're looking now probably at a start time of December and I thought well that's great I've got a semester to get my affairs in order I'll have time sure. to prepare my co-workers that I'll be gone from school I'll be taking a leave of absence I'll get uh, a substitute teacher in to fill in for me I've got time to make this happen so it's beginning of July getting ready to start school again and I start seeing online all of these reports that the clinic is closing. He's not treating any more patients. He's going on sabbatical. He's done. And I said, well, that can't be right because I was just told that they're going to get me scheduled in, in, in December. Yeah. So that that's just gossip, you know, because people love to gossip. They're always the oh, naysayers. Yeah, they and, do. You know, the, the standing detractors, I won't even acknowledge their names on the podcast, but there are the several that make their living out of just trying to discredit the research and the science. And, uh, I just got very confused and I said, there can't be anything to this, but then individuals that were also in the same Facebook groups were revealing, I just got a phone call and I was scheduled, but my dates have been canceled mm. or, you know, I just heard that he thinks that I'm, you know, I've advanced to secondary progressive and I'm not a good candidate for this. So my dates are canceled. And then it was my insurance um, hasn't approved it in time. So my dates were canceled. And I just told my wife, I said, this isn't going to happen. I'm going to get canceled. You know, I'm terrified this is going to happen. And then um, my first insurance request was denied. I called Northwestern and I said, so is this over with? And they said, no, our department's working on your appeal. We have a conference call set up. We'll let you know. And I'm like, okay, we'll see where this goes. And um, the day of the conference call that afternoon, you know, I was just so eager and nervous about it. I didn't call Northwestern, I called my insurance company and I said, has this, has this meeting happened? And they said, yes, I just got the results. We were going to mail you a letter, but we can go ahead and tell you. 
um, based on the conversation we have with Dr. Byrne and his staff and based on the current status of your MS, we deal this treatment is medically necessary for you and we're going to approve it. Oh, wow. How did that feel? That felt so amazing. You know, okay. having having talked to people that had to do three, four, five appeals, having talked to people that just been outright denied and had to go the route of the fundraiser and, you know, knowing that he was going to go on a sabbatical and knowing that other people were being canceled, I just didn't see any way that I would ever be able to raise that much money or wait through those appeals if it didn't get approved. But even after it got approved, having been told that you'll do this in late December, early January, I just didn't see how they would squeeze it in before he was, you know, going to take a sabbatical. So I didn't think it would happen. I get a phone call while I'm actually teaching. Um, one of my, some, I'm a band director and I'm teaching summer band camp. And I get a phone call on the last day that said, Hey, Mr. Taylor, we're, we're, we're going to schedule you for pre-testing. Can you be in Chicago next week? And I said, I think I could make that happen to get up there for pre-testing, but uh, I'm confused because I'm reading reports that he's done in December. And they said, oh, well, he is, but you're, you're going to come on. You'll be here in September. And I was, oh, the emotions overwhelmed me. I was, I was sure. grateful. I was thankful. I was in shock. You know, I was overwhelmed that it was going to happen that quickly. But also, after having, you know, built online acquaintances and relationships with people that have been canceled, I'm feeling survivor's guilt at this point. I'm like, how is it right that other people in line, you know, are not going to get to do this? And and somehow I am. Mm. But, you know, it it was explained to me by people that talked me through it. Everybody's situation is different. Yeah. You don't know the status of their disease. You don't know what other qualifications there were or weren't in play. But just Mm. be thankful that it worked for you and, and you go do this. It's such an interesting so, balance, isn't it? It was just, it was just very humbling, mm. you know, that, that I was one of the ones that, that made it through the process. Sure. So tell us about your diagnosis. Like, what was it about your experience with MS that made you such a good candidate? Oh, that, that is a, a lifetime ago, but so many things. Um, it controlled my life for longer than I realized because... At the time, you just don't know what it is. You know, I just thought I was a very unique person who was top heavy with small feet Mm. because I fell down a lot. (laughs) I just thought I had bad balance. But, you know, I'm as far back as college in the the early 90s. I'm slipping and falling, you know, just attribute it to, like I said, being clumsy or what have you. And then I developed in the early 2000s, right after I got married, some verbal issues, Um, had problems with aphasia forgetting words, using the wrong words all the time. My wife just called it Yahtzee or word salad. I would, you know, the noun of my choice, I'm talking about handing me the remote control and wondering why she won't hand me the remote control. And she's staring at me and saying, it's because you keep saying microwave and I know that's not what you want. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I just had huge word issues, um, spoonerisms all the time, making up words. I didn't relate it at the time because I wasn't thinking MS. And now that I know the relationship between stress and MS, it makes sense. Mm. But the language and communication problems that I would have, the more stressed I got at work, the worse it got. Sure. The closer I got to performances with students or formal evaluations or competitions, my speech in the class would be almost unintelligible. Mm. And I was having a hard time communicating with the children, but I always had one or two in the room that 
were enough mind readers that could sense the flow of the class that they knew what I really meant. So they would correct me. Oh, <laughs> what wonderful what beings. Yeah, that's you know, amazing. Then, it, it was really helpful to have kids with me that could kind of just sense that I needed some help there. And then in 2007, it got bad to the point that I was having a hard time functioning. I was on spring break and I did not know how to go back and finish the semester. And I remember the episode standing in the kitchen of the house we lived at the time. And my wife just looked at me and she said, you are going to the doctor. This is more than just quirkiness. Something is wrong. And so I saw my first neurologist, did an MRI, saw five, six little spots when they called me into the office. And he just said that it was micro infarcts that I had little strokes, but that's all it was. Interesting. And I said, okay, and you think that's all it is? And he said, yes. And he said, and there's nothing really we can do for this as far as your language problems, if you think stress makes them worse. Um, here are some free samples of Abilify. Try this. And I read the side effects, and no thank you. I'm, I'm not going to take that drug and risk those side effects, some of them permanent. So I didn't take the drugs, but... Now that I knew what it was, assuming that it was stroke-related, I just made lifestyle changes, make sure that my diet was good, my exercise was good, was staying in shape, and I didn't think much more about it. And uh, I switched schools and took a different position, and fast-forward three years, it's um, spring of 2010, and I am teaching my class, and it's around March. Most, most of these events happen in March, it seems. And I'm teaching the class, and I feel a dabbing, searing pain in my right leg, like a muscle cramp. Well, I reached down to rub it out, and my thigh is numb. And I'm like, how can I simultaneously be in this much pain and yet have no sensation in my leg? It, you know, it didn't make sense, and that's the first time I'd experienced numbness like that. So I went to my primary care physician. She ordered an MRI, and the results of that scan said, um, you know, the one that we've all come to know if we have MS and we've seen the the, the, the uh, radiologist reports, lesions in the white matter, worse compared to 2007, evidence of demyelinating disease. And that was a word I had not heard before. Badly mispronounce any of the words that, that, that I try to remember from those scans, not looking at them. I'm not good with medical terminology, but I did see demyelinating disease and I didn't know what that was. And so I did what everybody that's my age in their 40s does ran to the computer and Googled. And I typed into myelinating disease and the first thing that popped up was multiple sclerosis. And it terrified me because all I knew of multiple sclerosis being, you know, that period of my life was images of um, Annette Funicello, Richard Pryor, people at the end stage of their life having suffered from that disease. And it, it just instilled a fear in me that that's not where I wanted to go, but I need to know more about this. And so that led to a referral to the second neurologist I saw, and he had a very different opinion on things. He told me that the scanner that I used in his facility was much better than the one I used for my first scan. He didn't really think that it was any worse. He just thought the difference in imaging was because of the quality of the scans and that I would need to get another scan. And he explained that for a definitive diagnosis, there had to either be another episode or, you know, flare-up of symptoms, or there had to be a distance of time between scans. So he gave me narcotic pain medication for my leg pain hmm. and told me that he would see me in 12 months and we would repeat the scan on the same machine. 12 months? 
12 months. That's a long time. You better believe it was a long time. Mm. And during that time, I developed fasciculations where all of my muscles are moving independently. It just, you can look at my legs and see my calves crawling all the time. Mm. Not like a Charlie horse, but just individual muscles just popping and it wasn't limited to my legs. It was just like when, you know, you everybody's felt their eyelid jerk before or the little yeah. twitches they get. Mm-hmm. You name a muscle group, it twitched. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to teach class and the pinky on my left hand is going 90 miles an hour mm. and my arm will shake. It will just jerk out of control. And so all of these muscle spasms and fasciculations pop up and I would go to his office and I would schedule a follow-up and say, I know we're waiting 12 months for a scan, but this is happening. And he, he said, well, lots of people have that. That's an insignificant symptom to what oh, we're talking about. Oh my goodness. Yes. I'm so I sorry. I was floored. He kept telling me that these symptoms were insignificant and that he didn't think it was MS. Mm. He just didn't think it was MS. And he didn't even consider a spinal tap or... He didn't do a spinal tap. He didn't do an evoked potentials test just based off of one skin and the symptoms I presented with. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. He was being nearly dismissive. And you thought he was a good second opinion. I thought he was incredible based on the referral of a friend. She had suffered with migraines for years and he was the first doctor that figured out what it was and treated her and she was pain-free for the first time in, in, in her life with adult migraines. And so when my primary care physician referred him, I said, I've heard good things about him. Yeah. I think that'll be great. And, you know, it was awkward because um, we know each other through our children being the exact same ages and in school together and them attending the same church that we do. So we weren't friends necessarily, but just an acquaintance through, through church. And so I knew who he was. He's just telling me that this is insignificant. So... We hit the 12-month mark. I have my second MRI with him. This would be my third total. And I have my follow-up appointment. And he said, I've looked at the two scans. I've compared them. Change isn't appreciable. There are others that would diagnose you at this point, but I just don't see it. Um, If your leg's still bothering you and you don't want to take the pills, we can do a nerve ablation to try to eliminate the leg pain. And I said, but what about all these muscle problems? And he said... They're insignificant, but th- this is this is what I see. And I said, okay, thank you. And me just being a trusting guy, I trusted the medical professional. I trusted the doctor that that's not what it was. Well, I also have sleep issues, and I see a neurologist in the same clinic that is my sleep doctor. And I went to see him for a follow-up on my um, the CPAP that I use for, for nighttime sleeping. I went to see him for a follow-up for the hypopnea. And because he works in the same clinic, he sees all of my reports in my file. It's just a shared file in that one facility. And he said, I read your report. Have you decided what disease-modifying therapy you're considering? Mm. And I said, for what? And he said, what were you told at your last appointment? And at this point, he's having to walk a fine line, you know? Well, sure. And I said, I was told that the change wasn't appreciable. And he said, the exact wording is that there is no significant change, but there is progression. And I got a copy of my report and, you know, he's looking at, he said, have you considered a second opinion? And I said, he was my second opinion. Should I consider a third? And he shook his head. Yes. And so I left that appointment. I walked to the front desk and I said, I would like my file. They said, we can email it. I said, I'll wait. And I sat in the office for an hour while they made copies, and I took my file with me. Good for you. And we called 
We called another mutual friend who had a neurologist that their family had been using for a different um, issue that they loved. And I drove out to see him. And that's when I met the doctor who actually, for the first time, took me seriously. And I'll never forget it, my first appointment, because he's taken an oral history of everything I've been through. And when I told him that the other doctor had said that those muscle movements were insignificant, he stopped and he paused and he looked at me and he said, everything is significant. We're talking about your body and your life. Everything is significant. How did that feel? I felt validated. Mm -hmm. I I felt respected. I felt like for the first time, somebody was really listening to me. I mean, you reach a point where you think you're a hypochondriac or you're making things up or you start to think of any other condition that could lead to these same symptoms and same results. But to hear him say that everything was significant and that we were going to explore this, I I just felt respected and validated. Sure. That's amazing. I had a doctor, a neurologist tell me way back in the day, gosh, maybe this was even 1998 or 99. He told me I needed to start seeing a psychiatrist because there was no evidence of anything I was telling him to be true. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that I was, ma- I was making therapy. it up. Why would we, why would we choose to live this way right? and, and to acknowledge as much pain and, and difficulty? Yeah. Well, and especially when you have say muscle spasms, twitching right. is visible and you know, yeah, the symptoms are visible. They're physical. They're there. And so um, there was a period of six months where he said, we do need some time between scans since you're switching doctors and you don't have any presentations beyond what you're showing me today and just wanting to have, you know, a, a correct clinical diagnosis on everything. And he explained that it's very much a diagnosis of exclusion sometimes that we want to rule other things out. And based on what I presented with, um, I was tested for ALS. Um, we did blood work to check for other genetic possible reasons for my muscle motions and the cramping that I was having. And, you know, one by one, we ruled everything else out and there wasn't much left that it could be. And then in November of 2011, we did a scan that was six months after the, the, the May scan at the other hospital. And at my follow-up appointment, he said, uh, this, this MRI does show, um, disease progression and um, active lesions. Not only is this MS, but you're in the middle of an episode now. Um, He sent me home with literature and not 12 hours later, the home health nurse was at my house with uh, solumedrol. I started a 5A steroid infusion that day and within a week I had started on Capaxone. So yeah, that was November 18th, 2011 was the day I was officially diagnosed and treatment began. That's intense. And that was new, you know. Oh, my gosh, um, yeah. Well, to finally have an answer, but then suddenly be all of a sudden exactly. just thrown like, into treatment. It was like relief. I finally have an answer. And it was like, no, I don't like the answer. <laughs> you know. Sure. So, it was a, you know, everybody goes through a period of grieving when they hear that they have a, a chronic illness. But um, my children were young at an age where they didn't really understand what exactly it was, but I went ahead and told them and, I comforted them and explained the difference between chronic illness and terminal illness and that I wasn't going to be like their other friends' fathers who had contracted cancers and passed away quickly and suddenly, that, that this wasn't that type of disease, that it was manageable. And I was just trying to find new ways of managing it. Everything for me just kind of progressed in ways that you would expect. During my periods of remission, I did have complete relief from some of my 
symptoms. Um, the muscle spasms weren't always bad. The fasciculations weren't always present. Um, treating me with a combination of um, tizanidine and neurotin for some of the muscle pain and the spasms helped greatly. It's good to have the drugs that can treat the symptoms. It's not always great to feel so chemically dependent on them, but it's fr from need. Sure. But and I if just, they work for you, then yeah, you need them. Yeah. If, if they work and you can manage the side effects of them, then definitely use them to your benefit. But uh, once I'm under treatment, it seemed like every 12 months or so, I, I would have a flare up and it would be either more the same or something new. Um, I experienced basilopic neuritis, having, you know, visual difficulties. Um, I developed um, fourth nerve palsy, which caused some uh, double vision issues that I, um, I've had to use prism lenses to correct. Problems with, you know, numbness and pain neuropathy in hands and feet. Um, the one that finally sent me over the edge where I'm questioning the treatment um, central nerve pain. Some people call it hypothalamus pain. I experience a sensation that people get like when they have a sunburn on my legs all the time, even when I've been indoors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I <laughs> know it. That one really puzzled me. And I said, I've got a bad sunburn. And my wife said, how do you know? I said, my legs are just burning. We were only outside for two hours today with the band, but I must have not put on enough sunscreen. My legs are really burning. Feel and on then fire. I noticed the next day, I never pinked up. I never turned red. I mean, I hurt so bad. I was expecting blisters like it was mm -hmm. third degree sunburn. And she goes, you don't have a sunburn? And I said, I assure you I do. Well, my legs just burn all the time and it wouldn't go away. Went back to my neurologist and we increased the dust in the rotten and it helped some, but it was just always there, always there. And then it was in the fall of the fall of 18, I went to see him in October and I had an appointment and a follow-up and he, he explained that I was taking the most neurotin that I could take, that the way it's metabolized through the kidneys, that any more than this, you're just going to excrete it. It's not doing any good. Yikes. And he explained the source of the pain and that it's just a perception. It's not stimulus-based. There's nothing wrong. You just Isn't it pain. awful? Like it is. It's, it's your nerves it's, playing well, tricks on you. It's terrible. And I try not to be too much of an emotional person, but I went out to the parking lot after that visit and I couldn't, I couldn't drive home. I just cried for, yeah. for forever. And I finally called my wife crying and she goes, what's the matter? And I said, I'm just having a hard time accepting that this is what it is. This is life. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, he's telling me that this isn't going away. This isn't going to get better. And I'm just having a hard time accepting this as my new normal. I don't because know what I can live so painful. with this. Yeah. You know, and being in that much pain all the time, it changes you, you know, psychologically, fundamentally, your behavior, your mood. Um, I'm, I'm fatigued all the time in addition to this. So I'm taking one pill to stay awake during the day. I'm taking another to help with uh, extreme nightmares and trouble sleeping at night because mm. I've always dreamed very vividly. It's like I'm watching television when I wake up, I'm exhausted. Oh, wow. Because my brain's been on all night. So I'm taking one to sleep at night, one to be awake at the day as much as I can take for this leg pain. And um, a very large dose of an antidepressant. So I'm just chemically drugged out and feeling this way. And it was just a hard adjustment. And I had a very difficult fall just accepting the fact that that's what my life is going to be. Sure. That's a very and, uh, heavy burden to carry. Very. And then New Year's Eve. I also play trumpet in a uh, rock band. And New Year's Eve we're playing. And... 
I'm having a difficult time and I notice that the right side of my mouth is tingly and numb. And that progressed for about two weeks until the right side of my face, head, and arm were numb. And my coworker noticed it. He said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Why? And he goes, because you don't look right. The right side of your face just doesn't look right. Mm. And so my wife said, you need to call the doctor. I told you New Year's Eve when you didn't feel right on your lips. And I said, well, I felt a little tingly before. And she said, well, you ignored it for two weeks, and now it's half your face. Handle it. And so I, I listened and uh, went to back to my neurologist, and he said, there's nothing muscular about this that's affected. It's not a stroke. You've got movement. The problem is because you lack sensation, you're tending not to use that side, but you can he said, this is probably, you know, he did some more testing and he said, yeah, you're having sensation issues on one side. Um, I'm convinced you've got something going on. We'll do an MRI, but you need to be back on steroids. And uh, the MRI did show new lesions and I did my treatment of steroids and got the feeling back on my right side and things kind of calmed down. But knowing that the Capaxone, you know, after eight years just was not getting it done. Sure. You know, and, you know, reading the literature and by the percentage it's supposed to diminish your relapses. I'm thinking, well, I'd hate to see where I was if I wasn't taking this. Sure. But it's but obvious also, that this, yeah. this isn't working for me. So I need to consider another another treatment. And he mentioned to Sabri and the risk of PML. And I started looking at all the other pills because when I was diagnosed um, in 2011, I think there were still only four. There was like the Avonex and the beta serotonin. Four and treatments, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As far as, far as treatments, there were only like four and they were all injectables. And, uh, you know, I've been taking it so long now, they don't even buy advertising space in the magazines or the journals anymore. Right. Um, it's gone generic and they're just not even trying to sell it. I guess they've moved on to the next thing. The one thing that they did was try to go to the, the three days a week pill instead of the everyday shot. Mm. I mean, the, yeah, the three, the three times a week shot. But, um, I just only knew that one medicine I had been on, but reading the side effects for all of the new pet tablets and pills that had come out, they scared me. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at these side effects and thinking, I don't want to put that in my body. Some of the side effects and risks almost outweigh the good they claim to do. Mm-hmm. And if they only work as well as Capaxone and love them really showed to be more effective to a large enough degree that I just wanted to risk it. And so... It was in a place of me knowing that I'm taking this shot every day that may or may not be doing any good at all while fearful of any other option out there. And it was just kind of being in this neutral place of where do I go next that my wife did the research and found Dr. Burt's study online. Oh, wow. So in that regard, the timing just seemed right that this would be the logical next step for me. Sure. So he didn't require you to have been on three other DMDs. Right. What was fortunate, you know, a lot, a lot of people were like, well, I've only felt one drug, I can't do the study. And I had only ever been on one drug. But if you read the complete requirement list for the most study, it outlined that you either had to fail more than one medication or fail the same medication twice in a 12-month period. So March of 18, I had lesions show up, new lesions, I'll say. January of 19, I had new lesions show up. And so that was twice within a 12-month period, but Mm -hmm. not 12 months immediately up to the point that I was being screened. So I'm thinking, well, I might qualify, but I might not. I still wasn't sure. But then when I had the MRI at Northwestern, reading that report in my visit with Dr. Burt, Nurse Aldridge um, showed me the report. I had three new lesions show up between 
January and June, and for the first time ever, lesions were evident in my spinal cord. Mm. And up to that point, they had been limited to my brain, stem, and brain. So it was it was obvious to, to Dr. Burt that a uh, capaxone was not working for me. I had felt it just enough time, and based on my disability rating and the progress of my disease, it, it just worked out that I was a candidate. So that's how I went from diagnosis to treatment. Wow, oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing such a thorough timeline. Oh, you're welcome. Well, and just more about symptoms. I mean, I think that helps people, especially if they haven't received a diagnosis yet, to sometimes hear familiarity and our stories. Right. And, uh, you know, he- hearing stories definitely helps. Um, I found the podcast through a, a Google search, and I discovered the HSCT Warriors organization. Mm-hmm. And through that website, found the podcast. And uh, the band that I play with is about 35 miles west of where I live. So when we would play different events on weekends, and I would have you know a good almost two hours of commuting time from my house to where we were playing, I just listened to episodes. Oh, I'm so grateful. So anytime I was in the car driving, I'm listening because I wanted to learn as much about it as possible. But it, it was during that period between when I was told that uh, he wanted to see me in June. It was like between early April and when I went in June that, 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 that I discovered it and listened the most. And I took real encouragement from hearing people's stories about oh, I'm so glad. You know, d- discovering similarities of the, of the timeline to diagnosis and just hearing their experience in transplant itself. So the, the podcast was a huge source of strength, and the, and the other was community. Um, I know that a lot of people have a negative opinion about the Facebook groups and people that get on and spread rumors and things, but what was unique for us is that a group of us just through bits and pieces sharing similar stories, realizing that, oh, well, these people are also being screened in, in, in June. Okay, these people are also going to be protesting in August. We just kind of found each other, and we made our own group. And there was a nucleus of about, I think I said 12 of us. Most had MS, two or three had CIPD or our scleroderma. Um, And we just kind of, in a way, became family. Sure. And we kept up with each other, you know, before testing, after testing, when we were there. And I, I was just, this occurred to me yesterday how humorous it was. We're in the hospital and we've each got a phone in our room. And we all have the ability to pick up and just phone each other. Yet, it's it's all it's all through our cell phone, Facebook Messenger, or emails or texts. Sure. I don't I don't know that I ever called anybody from my room phone. No, but actually we, had a we, we just stayed in touch throughout the whole process, and it, it it was a great source of strength. It really is. We had a group that I was in during the fall when I went through. No one is at, at the hospital at the same time as me, but still good to know people on the bookends, right? Yes. You know. So why was it important for you to participate in the podcast? Well, I I noticed that you don't hear from as many men as women. Indeed. Thank you so much for providing a a male voice. Just whenever you would interview men, it was encouraging to me. And uh, I just noticed that more women than men, from what I observed online, tended to either discuss their journey or participate in groups and so I just wanted to be a voice of encouragement if I could to any um, men that were considering this or didn't know about this or uh, thought it might be an option for them. Thank you so much. It is important. And I also think some people in receiving that invitation get hesitant 
right? They hesitate to be vulnerable and they're unsure. And so maybe they don't accept the invitation. That's okay. And I think it'd be great. Let people self-nominate if they're interested, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that before season five. (laughs) Cause yeah, we're close to the end of season four. I try to do this 12 weeks at a time and then give myself a break. And, uh, it's interesting right now with COVID-19 shutting everything down, including HSCT clinics. Oh, yes. There's um, so much uncertainty right now. Complete uncertainty. I was, you know, a, a group of us were, were, were chatting the other day and I said how fortunate we were that we got to do this before the sabbatical, yeah. but also how fortunate everyone is that no one is doing this now. Right. With this, with this virus out there, I could not imagine having a completely compromised immune system. Right. Terrifying. Um, it is. Um, my, my father-in-law, um, he went through HSCT for his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was in Houston having a stem cell transplant at the exact same time I was having it done in Chicago. Wow. My poor wife. Her father was in Houston and I'm in Chicago and she's home with the kids. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. He had the exact same things done. His was completely myeloblative for his cancer. So he had a much longer recovery process afterwards. But he's home now and um, still going through some chemotherapy. So he is quite compromised and it's a scary situation, you know. It really truly is. But, you know, I was sharing perspective with my students. We were in an online chat room yesterday just doing some, some video lessons and one of them said, this is, you know, really different being isolated in the house. And I said, it is. And I said, well, to use it as a teaching moment to explain, you remember how you didn't see me after Labor Day? <laughs> you know, I wasn't in Chicago that whole time. I was home in the middle of October, but I had mm-hmm. to stay home because I was susceptible to catch everything. Yeah. And now it's a country we're just worried about this one thing. But you guys are all socially distancing for the same reason that I did. Right. And and I think it gave them more of an appreciation for what I did. Mm. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, it feels very familiar to me. Like I'm very comfortable being at home and staying at home and not going to the grocery store and yeah, I'm, I don't have a problem with this. I'm used to it. My 20-year-old son is having a problem. You know, I he, bet. He's not used to being. He's not used to being so still. He's very social and outgoing, so he's had to make some changes. And so I'm curious because you are just six months post-transplant. How are you feeling now? Do you notice any difference in functionality? Oh yes, uh, it's it's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. I made some changes to my life. When I was in the hospital and they're um, doing the intake and they're looking at my list of medications, they said, what is this that you're taking in the morning? And I explained that's for, you know, it's for daytime alertness. And they said, so it's a stimulant. And I said, yes, we don't need you stimulated. So we're not going to have you take that. <laughs> right. And then they said, what is this? I said, well, I take that at night to help me sleep. Well, that's the same class of drug as... Um, this drug that we're going to give you with your chemo and you can't be on both. So let's have you stop taking that. I'm like, okay. And so I stopped taking those two while I was inpatient. And then when I got home, I just didn't start taking them again and I felt fine. Mm. And I'm doing my weekly labs and everything was rebounding. And, you know, I only needed three three platelet transfusions in the hospital. Nice. My, my other counts came back fine on their own or stayed good. So my white's coming up, my platelets are coming up, everything looks good, but my liver enzymes are off the chart. And they said, well, we've got to get that liver under control. 
and we're looking over at your list of medications and we think that these drugs are most likely the culprits that are irritating your liver. So talk to your primary care physician and come up with a plan. And so um, we did. And uh, now I am completely off of an antidepressant and don't need it. How does that I feel? I'm different. It's like I had been on one for so many years, I forgot what it was like to not be on one. Sure. And you don't realize the side effects bringing you down and so you're just suddenly more alert. And I will not lie to you, it was rough going. I bet. You know, because when you come off of pills that you've been on for so long, you know, that the, the evening tranquilizer, the antidepressant, the morning stimulant, decrease the amount of muscle relaxer that I take. Um, I'm down from three blood pressure medicines to just two. And everything just feels more clear. Mentally, I'm more aware. Um, I'm still fatigued at certain times of day, but when I do have energy, it's a different kind of energy. And so I just feel better that I'm off of the pills. Sure. Um, I've been back to a follow-up with my eye doctor. My diplopia has resolved. I no longer have double vision, so I'm out of prism lenses. I went to my neurologist in January, and he put me through the normal testing that he usually does. I passed my first tandem gait test ever. Um, he no longer detects any sign of tremor in my hands. Mm. I past reflex texts that I never had. And he said that this physically is the best he has ever seen me. Wow. He joked and said, I think you could pass a DUI test if you had to. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always had that look about me when I, you know, stand with sure. your eyes closed and feet together. And it wasn't when I would fall over, it was just which direction was I going to go. Right. But the balance is better. The muscle spasms are less. The communication problems are better. It doesn't completely go away. And when I get stressed... It still can happen more than not, and every now and then they will pop up. But by and large, I, I'm much better than I've ever been. So this this was definitely a positive thing for me. Sure. Was um, your doctor on board with you going through the procedure? I got them both on board. You know, I've had the same primary care physician for so long, and I love my neurologist so much, but I was not going to do this without their blessing. So after I went through my June screening, I went to see both of them and I presented it to them. And my primary care said, if this is a phase three trial or beyond, I feel it would be safe enough. It is scientifically sound. I'm not as familiar with it for an autoimmune disease as I have seen it used for other things, but the drugs used are all approved, go for it. And then I saw my neurologist and I had sent him my reports from my screenings in June sent him the testing, sent him literature, and at our consultation, he admitted to me that he was not as familiar with it just because it had not been brought to his attention before. He had never had a patient pursue it for that reason. Um, for, for people further along in their progression, he himself had used cytoxin as an MS treatment. You know, before there were disease-modifying drugs, if you were having a flare-up to the point that sure. um, steroids wouldn't work, they would give you a jolt to chemo and try to knock down your white count along the same type of baseline approach, if you will, the same theory that your immune system is the problem, so let's kick it one good time. And so he was familiar with that use, but not the full use of the chemotherapy regimen with the uh, oh, uh, RATG yeah, and the uh, IVIG and the, the transplant. He, he was not familiar with the big picture. But once he read everything, he said, it seems safe. It looks promising. If this is something you want to do, go for it. I'm interested in seeing how it goes. 
Well, my last appointment with him, after he tested me and examined me and talked to me, he was smiling. He was glowing. He's elated. He thinks this is wonderful now. Mm. You know, we leave the office and he's telling another one of the, the doctors in the clinic, oh, you got to check out Mr. Taylor. You're never going to believe what he did. I just think this is wonderful. So he's on board. He's a fan. That's wonderful. We need him to talk and, and, to more doctors. You know, that, that meant the world to me that they sure. were supportive before the fact. And now that they've seen the results, I think it's great. It's tremendous, right? I think, especially because you were that prime candidate. Right, right. If, if more doctors treating patients that are prime candidates can refer them to or make them aware of HSCT as an option. Yeah, and if it would become more accepted, you know, as a course of treatment. Yeah. So that people have it as an option. You know, like you, you could take this infusion every three months. You could take this pill once a day or twice a day. It and these are all the side effects yeah. and many of them are bad. Or you could go do this once and see how it goes. And uh, and, th- and that's where I am with it. You know, I understand that there's possibility of future relapse, but, you know, there's possibility of future anything. That's the truth. And so I, I don't think that the fear of the what if is a reason to stop you because the reality was I was taking these drugs every day anticipating help and it eventually stopped working. So if you're doing one thing, hoping for a result, why not do another thing that promises a better result? And it's been done enough, long enough for a large enough sample of people that I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that it's a safe protocol and that it's a way for people to go if they're a candidate and it's right for them. You also have to be in a place in your life that affords you the opportunity to do this. You know, I was very fortunate in my employment situation that other than the MS, which was a daily event, I didn't get too many common colds or stomach viruses or ear infections, so I didn't miss much work. I had enough sick days saved at school that I was able to just explain to my employer what I would be doing, take four months off of work, and I never ran out of sick days. That's amazing. Um, My wife did not have that many days. She had to stay and work. I was blessed that my parents are retired and had their affairs in order that they were able to stop what they were doing and go to Chicago with me. So I had my wife there for pre-screening and for pre-testing, but when I went up for my um, mobilization and for my inpatient time, my mom and dad were both with me and lived in Chicago. Mm. And one of them was always with me in the hospital. And so that was a blessing, more than I can explain. Yeah. You know. I bet. I bet. What was your most memorable experience while you were there? Oh, my goodness. It, it, it all just kind of runs together. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that I can narrow it down to any one specific event, but if you'll allow me to reference an overall experience was just kindness. Mm. I've never seen such a kind nursing staff and competent medical team mm. and the the front desk staff at the um, residence in Marriott where we stayed, them being so understanding and compassionate, and they knew why I was there and what I was there for. And I didn't experience any issues with any individuals any step of the way that just was not miraculous as far as the way that I was approached and treated. It, it was just overall a great experience, as great as it could be considering what I was going through. Wasn't that amazing? And, I mean, you deserve to have that kind of ease, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anything else just adds to the stress. I will just say that it has not been my experience everywhere. 
unfortunately you go to some medical facilities and it's treated like a process and you're treated like a product and your results are the byproduct of the process. You don't really get treated like a person. And I can say 100% that that was not my experience at Northwestern. Mm, that's wonderful. It just, it needs to be made more available. I feel strongly about that. Agreed. Thanks for sharing that opinion. <laughs> and it sounds like you had a relatively smooth experience. You didn't have a lot of complications. Um, Minor. I didn't react negatively to any of the treatments while they were going on. I had a delayed reaction to the chemotherapy. I don't like, as far as like nausea and sickness, I became very, very sick the night of my transplant. Everything, the first six days were fine. And then the night of my transplant, about two in the morning, I got really, really ill with stomach issues. And uh, they put me back on some anti-nausea medicines that I'd come off of after the chemotherapy stopped. And uh, I also, overnight, the same night, um, went into atrial fibrillation. But um, Dr. Bird explained to me that that's very common, and um, he'd seen it happen, and that he'd never seen it not correct on its own. When it happened, I received a whole new level of care. You know, they, they came in for sure. my morning exam, listened to my heartbeat, determined that, that I was an AFib, that that's what it was. And within 30 minutes, I had had an EKG, an echo, been visited by a team of cardiologists, and was on a telemetry monitor. And, you know, they, they took care of business, but it needed to be taken care of. And I wore that monitor for seven days. And on a, it was on a Tuesday, a week after, like, because it was a Monday night when that, that AFib had started. The following Tuesday, um, I wake up from a nap at 4 o'clock for my afternoon medication. And they said, how do you feel? I said, I feel pretty good. And they said, well, they called over from telemetry at 2.12, and that's when you switch back to normal sinus rhythm. You're fine. How about that? So, you know, Dr. Bird had told me, he said, everybody that I've seen do this, they just switch back on their own, and you eventually will. But it's just timing. It'll happen. We went ahead and sent my records to a cardiologist here on the Mississippi coast, and we had arranged a follow-up before I ever left the hospital. And I, I've seen them since then, and everything's fine. So that was my only minor complication, if there was one. Sure. That's encouraging and encouraging that it, at least Dr. Burt recognized that it can be a normal thing that happens right? and resolves on its own. But yeah, they really respond. I'm sure the same is true for any transplant team. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's definitely the case. So what about a superpower that you gained from your experience with HSCT? Um, I have more appreciation for things. Everyday things, minor things, finding the good in situations. I'm hesitant to use the word perspective because I was always very an analytical, pensive type of person, second-guessing things and overthinking them. But I think I'm more quick to just find the positive in situations and just have a general appreciation for things. Sure. So that that's one good thing that's definitely come out of this. What about any resources or books that might help someone on their journey to research HSCT or find more information. Is there anything that helped you along the way or even with recovery? I read a lot of journal articles online and it was a very productive time for me to go through this because, you know, like uh, the, the Journal of American Medical Association, I think is what it is, the JAMA. Right, that published in January out. of 19, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the January 19 article was there for me to use as a resource to learn more about it. And then... While I am an inpatient in October, Northwestern released an article about Dr. Burt and the transplants. 
and just doing thorough internet searches, not just to, you know, news sources talking about it, but finding the medical journals online, which are available where you can read thoroughly about what it is, in addition to other hospitals, you know, support groups. Like there was the booklet that, that the Hope Manual that was provided at Northwestern for the process of going through transplant and afterwards. But um, I also found one from Cincinnati. I found one from a hospital in San Diego, just different hospitals, patient care manuals for after transplant. So just being able to read more about different opinions about how to care for yourself after transplant, diet, lifestyle change. So there are just a lot of good resources available sure. if you just do a little bit of searching. Are there any strategies you found that are helpful with you now post-transplant? I mean, I'm sure it helps to be detoxed from all of those drugs. Oh, the, the detox was wonderful. Um, participating in physical therapy after the fact, it, you know, it was difficult for me to want to get out and be around people. So I did wait a full month after I was home. It was mid-November before I started physical therapy mm. because I wanted to get more comfortable being in public. But um, the exercise helped. Um, I've actually started running, which is new for me. I'd always question people that ran, but mm. it's hard to explain. I just kind of felt an urge to get out and do something, and that's what it turned into. So being much more physically active helps. Um, maintaining that neutropenic diet beyond when you have to, mm. you know, just being very conscious about what you put into your body, and then just having common sense and caution towards life big picture. Um, one of the conversations that I had with Dr. Burt at my first meeting with him, when he asked if I had questions, I said, well, we've all decided that this is an autoimmune disease that's generally agreed upon, but there is a genetic component to it that they, they, they think exists. I said, so if there is a genetic predisposition to it, and I found that it was a great, great aunt, but it did exist in my family lineage. I said, if, if there is a predisposition to this and it is autoimmune and inflammation is the problem, I know that we can reset my immune system, but we cannot rewrite my genes. What assurance do I have that I won't flip that switch again? And he said, it is highly unlikely that you would, but it's best to avoid inflammation. Yeah. Inflammation and stress. Stress and causes inflammation. Yeah, I bet. That really stuck with me. You know, the career that I'm in teaching public school, stress presents itself daily. Sure. So it's good to have a better appreciation for the positive in situations. Like I said, I now acknowledge, well, that is a stressful situation. It doesn't mean that I have to be stressed with right. you and join you there. Yes. I can just acknowledge that this is a bad thing. Mm. You know, it's the difference between getting angry and being angry. And I think there is a difference. You know, I tell people that you can have a reflex reaction to something without that becoming a response to it. Mm. You just acknowledge that feeling and then you move on. Mm-hmm. So along those lines, um, if I can avoid inflammation, I am, you know, I take low grade fevers seriously. Mm -hmm. I try to stay away from sick people in general. So even when I went back in January, the children know that, uh, as much as I enjoy teaching them and being around them, this is a no hugging zone. And if you're sick, please get a hall pass to the library or go home. Don't bring your sniffles in here. So I just try to live a, a clean life as much as I can. Yeah, it's a good practice moving forward to carry forward. Right. So what are you grateful for about HSCT that has gone unspoken? The thing that I'm most grateful for um, is hope. I, I wrote Dr. Bird a letter in December, and I mentioned that specifically. One of the things that having a chronic illness like that that is progressive can rob you of is is hope because you don't 
see a future that doesn't involve the symptoms and the pain and the disease. You forget what any sense of normalcy looks like. And what HSCT did for me was it reset me to a point that I have hope again because I'm no longer fearful for what could be. I'm enjoying what is and optimistic that it's what will remain. I love that. So, so it's that hopefulness that matters the most. Indeed, it does. Say that again. I'm optimistic for what is. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for, for what is and optimistic that it will remain. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's kind of a in the present moment, seeing the good and knowing that now is what matters. Yeah, you've got to live in the now. And the ability to be able to enjoy your now matters the most. And, and just celebrating little victories like, um, you know, with our new group of, of STEM family that we gathered in October at Northwestern, um, just being able to celebrate each other's lives and hearing how we're succeeding and doing well and people back to work and enjoying their careers and new babies born and the friendships and relationships. It's just so much good has come from this. Yeah. It's like a new family. It's just wonderful. The relationships that we've made. It's encouraging and it's hopefully encouraging for listeners out there. I hope so. I hope, hope it continues to hope it continues to grow up. The foundation increases and awareness increases and th th this can become the standard uh, because it just appears that the drugs that they're coming up with just to my opinion, still just aren't safe enough to well, be a consideration. As you, as you mentioned, like living every day in such severe pain can really drive down a person's hope. And when you're hopeful that a drug might work for you, when in reality, maybe it doesn't or it stops working, right? It's, it's hard to then find hope to move forward. And right. And when you continue taking it daily, acknowledging that it's not working, that can create a feeling of hopelessness. Like, why am I doing this again? It's not working. I'm still relapsing. Is this necessary? Well, what else is there? And then you just feel trapped. Like that is your only option. You have to. And it is dreadful, right? Like you dread waking up and thinking what's going to be my normal today. Right. And not knowing that an HSCT really changes things around. You know, it did. And I am more of a believer now than I was going in. I was never a skeptic. If I was skeptical, I wouldn't have done it. But I was a realist. And I I, I told my, my wife and my children, I said, look, they, they don't use the word cure. Um, I don't know that this is going to heal me per se. The goal is to not get worse. And if I don't have to take shots every day, if I don't have to take dangerous pills every day, if I don't have to risk side effects from all of these drugs, and as a result, I don't progress any, then if this is my permanent normal, that will be okay. If I'm still just like I am today, 10 years from now, it will have been worth it. And, and that was my attitude going in. So the fact that I have seen so much improvement is such a blessing in my life. And I think that's what makes me the most appreciative and the most hopeful. That's beautiful. And I realize it's not everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. So you can't necessarily dangle that as an enticement for the procedure when in reality, not everyone does have that much improvement, but I'm just extremely thankful that I have. And and any level of improvement would have been great, but the fact that I've had so much is just wonderful. Sure, yeah, and it is indeed a bonus for so many. And you being the perfect candidate, I think, is what contributes to your experience with that recovery of a new normal that isn't full of pain and muscle spasm and optic neuritis or double vision, you know? it's Well, the, the vision improvements... Were the, were the first noticeable thing. You know, I didn't realize that much physical improvement because I wasn't being that active when I got home, but I did notice the vision improving first. 
And then uh, the decrease in daily pain, um, the, the frequency of the muscle spasms and the twitches go, going down. I just All of it's wonderful. And, uh, Any improvement's and, wonderful. Right. And my coworker mentioned to me, you know, he said I was, his wife is a nurse. And he mentioned, he said, I was telling Gwen last night that you just haven't had any of your verbal episodes like you used to. You've gone a really long time making complete sense, <laughs> <laughs> which was fun to hear. Well, it's fun to hear your story, and I appreciate your advocacy for HSCT. Oh, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to make sure that there's an awareness of this. Thanks so much for participating. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. I appreciate you uh, calling me and you including me on the podcast. I hope my story can help others. Yeah, it's great to offer a male voice to the world and to our listeners. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Be sure to visit hsctwarriorspodcast.com where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and connect with resources of the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Allen Salzer for sharing his superpowers to create the soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. It's been so great to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us on Instagram or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another HSCT warrior. Until then... Be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind. Be well. John Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained in the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician.